Act One of Sir Harry Wildair by George Farquhar. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sir Harry Wildair, being the sequel of the Trip to the Jubilee, a comedy. This sequel to the Jubilee appeared at Drury Lane in 1701 and was almost as popular as its predecessor. The smartness of the dialogue, the witty comment upon the fashions of the hour, the merriment of the story, the vice and flippancy exhibited by its chief character, all specially appealed to the audience before whom it was produced, and the comedy had a run of several nights. It was revived at Lincoln's Inn Fields, February 1st, 1737. To the Right Honourable, the Earl of Albemarle, etc., Knight of the Most Noble Order of the Garter. My Lord, my pen is both a novice in poetry and a stranger at court, and can no more raise itself to the style of panegyric than it can stoop to the art of flattery. But if, in the plain and simple habit of truth, it may presume to mix with that crowd of followers that daily attend upon your lordship's favour, please to behold a stranger with this difference that he pays more homage to your worth than adoration to your greatness. This distinction, my lord, will appear too nice and metaphysical to the world, who know your lordship's merit and place to be so inseparable, that they can only differ as the cause from the effect. And this, my lord, is as much beyond dispute as that your royal master, who has made the noble choice, is the most wise and most discerning prince in the universe." To present the world with a lively draught of your lordship's perfections, I should enumerate the judgment, conduct, piety, and courage of our great and gracious king, who can only place his favours on those shining qualifications for which his majesty is so eminently remarkable himself. But this, my lord, will prove the business of voluminous history, and your lordship's character must attend the fame of your great master in the memoirs of futurity as your faithful service has hitherto accompanied the noble actions of his life. The greatest princes in all ages have had their friends and favorites, with them to communicate and debate their thoughts, so to exercise and ripen their judgments, or sometimes to ease their cares by imparting them. The great Augustus, we read in his project of settling the unwieldy Roman conquests on a fixed basis of government, had the design laid, not in his council, but his closet. There we find him with his two friends, Masonus and Agrippa, his favorite friends, persons of sound judgment and unquestionable fidelity. There the great question is freely and reasonably debated, without the noise of faction and the constraint of formality. And there was laid that prodigious scheme of government that soon recovered their bleeding country, healed the wounds of the civil war, blessed the empire with a lasting peace, and styled his monarch Pater Patria. The parallel, my lord, is easily made. We have our Caesar, too, no less renowned than the forementioned Augustus. He first asserted our liberties at home against popery and thraldom, headed our armies abroad with bravery and success, gave peace to Europe and security to our religion. And you, my lord, are his Messinus, the private counsellor to those great transactions which have made England so formidable to its enemies, 
that which i blush to own it is grown jealous of its friends but here my lord appears the particular wisdom and circumspection of your lordship's conduct that you so firmly retain the favour of your master without the envy of the subject your moderation and even deportment between both has secured to your lordship the ear of the king and the heart of the people the nation has voted you their good angel in all suits and petitions to their prince and their success fills three kingdoms with daily praises of your lordship's goodness and his majesty's grace and clemency and now my lord give me leave humbly to beg that among all the good actions of your lordship's high and happy station the encouragement of arts and literature may not be solely excluded from the influence of your favour the polite Messinus, whom i presumed to make parallel to your lordship in the favour of his prince had his virgil and his horace and his time was mostly divided between the emperor and the poet he so managed his stake of royal favour that as augustus made him great so the muses fixed him immortal and morrow's excellency my lord will appear the less wonder when we consider that his pen was so cherished with bounty and inspired by gratitude but i can lay no claim to the merits of so great a person for my access to your lordship i have only this to recommend me without art void of rhetoric that i am a true lover of my king and pay an unfeigned veneration to all those who are his trusty servants and faithful ministers which infers that i am my lord with all submission your lordship's most devoted and most obedient humble servant g farquhar dramatis personae sir harry wildair read by peter tucker beau banter a younger brother to sir harry read by sonia colonel standard read by mike harris captain fireball a naval officer brother to colonel standard read by craig franklin monsieur le marquis a sharping refugee read by thomas peter clincher the jubilee beau turned politician read by adrian strowett dicky servant to sir harry read by alan mapstone shark servant to captain fireball read by todd lord bellamy read by todd remnant the tailor read by lydia lady lurwell read by abai angelica read by sonia polly read by lianya chambermaid one read by ariel lipshaw chambermaid two read by kalinda lady one read by sandra schmidt lady two read by carolyn ag footman read by todd and the stage directions are read by marianne scene london prologue our authors have in most their late essays prologued their own by damning other plays made great harangues to teach you what was fit to pass for humour and go down for wit athenian rules must form an english peace and drury lane comply with ancient greece exactness only such as terence writ must please our mast lucretius in the pit our youthful author swears he cares not a pin for vosius scaliger hadalin or rapin 
he leaves to learned pens such laboured lays you are the rules by which he writes his plays from musty books let others take their view he hates dull reading but he studies you first from your bow his lesson is formality and in your footman there most nice morality footnote at this date footmen occupied the upper gallery of the theatre without payment whilst in attendance upon their masters their rude and turbulent conduct often gave rise to much comment End footnote. to pleasure them his pegasus must fly because they judge and lodge three stories high from the front boxes he has picked his style and learns without a blush to make em smile a lesson only taught us by the fair a waggish action but a modest air among his friends here in the pit he reads some rules that every modish writer needs he learns from every covent garden critic's face the modern forms of action time and place the action he's ashamed to name do you see the time is seven the place is number three the masks he only reads by passant looks he dares not venture far into their books thus then the pit and boxes are his schools your air your humour his dramatic rules let critics censure then and hiss like snakes he gains his ends if his light fancy takes st james's bow and covent garden rakes sir harry wildair being the sequel of the trip to the jubilee act one scene one the park enter colonel standard and captain fireball meeting ah brother fireball welcome ashore what heart whole limbs firm and frigate safe all all is my fortune and friends good wish and what news from the baltic why yonder are three or four young boys in the north that have got globes and sceptres to play with they fell to loggerheads about their playthings the english came in like robin goodfellow cried bow and made em be quiet in the next place then you're to congratulate my success you have heard i suppose that i've married a fine lady with a great fortune ay ay twas my first news upon landing that colonel standard had married the fine lady lowell a fine lady indeed a very fine lady but faith brother i had rather turn skipper to an indian canoe than manage the vessel you're master of why so sir because she'll run adrift with every wind that blows she's all sail and no ballast shall i tell you the character i've heard of a fine lady a fine lady can laugh at the death of her husband and cry for the loss of a lapdog a fine lady is angry without a cause and pleased without a reason a fine lady has the vapours all the morning and the colic all the afternoon the pride of a fine lady is above the merit of an understanding head yet her vanity will stoop to the adoration of a peruke and in fine a fine lady goes to church for fashion's sake and to the basset table with devotion and her passion for gaming exceeds her vanity of being thought virtuous or the desire of acting the contrary we seamen speak plain brother you seamen are like your element always tempestuous too ruffling to handle a fine lady say you so why then 
Give me thy hand, honest Frank, and let the world talk on and be damned. The world talk, say you? What does the world talk? No, nothing, nothing at all. They only say what's usual upon such occasions, that your wife's the greatest coquette about the court, and your worship the greatest cuckold about the city. That's all. How? How, sir? That she's a coquette and you're a cuckold. She's an angel in herself and a paradise to me. She's an Eve in herself and a devil to you. She's all truth and the world a liar. Why then, egad, brother, it shall be so. I'll back again to White's, and whoever dares mutter scandal of my brother and sister, I'll dash his rat of ear in his face and call him a liar. Going. Hold, hold, sir. The world is too strong for us. Were scandal and detraction to be thoroughly revenged, we must murder all the bows and poison half the ladies. Those that have nothing else to say must tell stories. Fools over burgundy and ladies over tea must have something that's sharp to relish their liquor. Malice is the piquant source of such conversation, and without it their entertainment would prove mighty insipid. Now, brother, why should we pretend to quarrel with all mankind? Because that all mankind quarrel with us. The worst reason in the world. Would you pretend to devour a lion because a lion would devour you? Yes, if I could. Aye, that's right, if you could. But since you have neither teeth nor paws for such an encounter, lie quietly down and perhaps the furious beast may run over you. Stiff, sir. But I say that whoever abuses my brother's wife, though at the back of the king's chair, he's a villain. No, no, brother. That's a contradiction. There's no such thing as villainy at court. Indeed, if the practice of courts were found in a single person, he might be styled villain with a vengeance. But number and power authorises everything, and turns the villain upon their accusers. In short, sir, every man's morals, like his religion nowadays, pleads liberty of conscience. Every man's conscience is his convenience, and we know no convenience but preferment. As, for instance, who would be so complacent as to thank an officer for his courage, when that's the condition of his pay? And who can be so ill-natured as to blame a courtier for espousing that which is the very tenure of his livelihood? A very good argument in a very damnable cause. But, sir, my business is not with the court, but with you. I desire you, sir, to open your eyes. At least be pleased to lend an ear to what I heard just now at the chocolate house. Brother. Well, sir? Did the scandal please you when you heard it? No! Then why should you think it should please me? Be not more uncharitable to your friends than to yourself, sweet sir. If it made you uneasy, there's no question but it will torment me, who am so much nearer concerned. But would you not be glad to know your enemies? Pshaw! If they abuse me, they are my friends. My intimate friends, my table company, and my pot companions. Why then, brother, the, the devil take all your acquaintance. You were so rallied, so torn, there were a hundred ranks of sneering white teeth drawn upon your misfortunes at once, which so mangled your wife's reputation that she could never patch up her honour while she lives. And their teeth were very white, you say? Very white. Blood, sir, I say. They mangled your wife's reputation. 
and I say that if they touched my wife's reputation with nothing but their teeth, her honour will be safe enough. Then you won't hear it? Not a syllable. Listening after slander is laying nets for serpents, which when you have caught will sting you to death. Let them spit their venom among themselves, and it hurts nobody. Lord, Lord, how cuckledom and contentment go together. Fie, fie, sir. Consider, you have been a soldier dignified by a noble post, distinguished by brave actions, an honour to your nation and a terror to your enemies. Hell, that a man who was storm-namer should become the jest of a coffee-table. The whole house was clearly taken up with the two important questions whether the colonel was a cuckold or kid a pirate. Aside. This I cannot bear. Aye, says a sneering coxcomb. The colonel has made his fortune with a witness. He has secured himself a good estate in this life and a reversion in the world to come. Then replies another, I presume he's obliged to your lordship's bounty for the latter part of the settlement. There are others, says a third, that have played with my lady Lerwell at piquet besides my lord. I have capoted her myself two or three times in an evening. Oh, matrimonial patience, assist me. Matrimonial patience? Matrimonial pestilence? Shake off those drowsy chains that fetter your resentments. If your wife has wronged you, pack her off, and let her person be as public as her character. If she be honest, revenge her quarrel. I can stay no longer. This is my hour of attendance at the Navy office. I'll come and dine with you. In the meantime, revenge. Think on. Exit. How easy is it to give advice, and how difficult to observe it? If your wife has wronged ye, pack her off. Aye, but how? The gospel drives the matrimonial nail, and the law clinches it so very hard, that to draw it again would tear the work to pieces. That her intentions have wronged me, here's a young board can witness. Enter Parley, running across the stage. Here, here, Mrs. Parley, whither so fast? Oh, Lord, my master! Sir, I was running to Mademoiselle Fourbello, the French milliner, for a new burgundy for my lady's head. No, child, you're employed about an old-fashioned garniture for your master's head, if I mistake not your errand. Oh, sir, there's the prettiest fashion lately come over. So airy, so French and all that. The pinners are double ruffled, with twelve plates of a side, and open all from the face. The hair is frizzled all up round the head, and stands as stiff as a bodkin. Then the favourites hang loose upon the temples, with a languishing lock in the middle. Then the call is extremely wide, and over all is a coronet raised very high, and all the lappets behind. I must fetch it presently. Going. Hold a little child, I must talk with you. Another time, sir. My lady stays for it. One question first. What wages does my wife give you? Ten pound a year, sir. Which God knows is little enough, considering how I slave from place to place upon her occasions. But then, sir, my prerequisites are considerable. I make above two hundred pound a year of her old clothes. Aside. Two hundred pounds a year by her old clothes? What then must her new ones cost? Aloud. But what do you get by visiting Gallants and Piquet? About a hundred pound more. Aside. A hundred pounds more? Now who can expect to find a lady's woman honest 
when she gets so much by being a jade. Aloud. What religion are you of, Mrs. Parley? I can't tell. What was your father? A mountebank. Where were you born? In Holland. Were you ever christened? No. How came that? My parents are Anabaptists. They died before I was dipped. I then forsook their religion, and had gone ne'er a new one since. I'm very sorry, madam, that I had not the honour to know the worth of your extraction sooner, that I might have paid you the respect due to your quality. Sir, your humble servant. Curtsies. Have you any principles? Five hundred. Have you lost your maidenhead? She puts on her mask and nods. Do you love money? Yarm in here. Well, Mrs. Parley, now you have been so free with me, I tell you what you must trust to in return. Never come near my house again. Be gone, monster. Fly. Hell and furies. Never christened. Her father a mountbank. Lord, sir, you need not be so furious. Never christened? What then? I may be a very good Christian for all that, I suppose. Turn me off, sir. You shan't. Meddle with your fellows. Tis my lady's business to order her women. Aside. Here's a young whore for you now. A sweet companion for my wife. Where there's such a hellish confidant, there must be damnable secrets. Aloud. Be gone, I say. My wife shall turn you away. Sir, she won't turn me away. She shan't turn me away. Nor she can't turn me away. Sir, I say she dare not turn me away. Why, you jade? Why? Because I'm the mistress, not she. You the mistress? Yes. I know all her secrets, and let her offer to turn me off if she dares. What secrets do you know? <laughs> Tell a wife's secrets to her husband. Very pretty, Faith. Sure, sir, you don't think me such a Jew. Though I was never christened, I have more religion than that comes to. Are you faithful to your lady for affection or interest? Shall I tell you a Christian lie or a pagan truth? Come, truth for once. Why, then? Interest, interest. I have a great soul, which nothing can gain but a great bribe. Well, though thou art a devil, thou art a very honest one. Give me thy hands, wench. Should not interest make you faithful to me as much as to others? Honest to you? Marry for what? You gave me indeed two pitiful pieces the day you were married, but not a stiver since. One gallant gives me ten guineas, another a watch, another a pair of pendants, a fourth a diamond ring, and my noble master gives me his linen to mend. <laughs> I'll tell you a secret, sir. Stinginess to servants makes more cuckolds than ill nature to wives. And am I a cuckold, Polly? No, Faith, not yet, though in a very fair way of having the dignity conferred upon you very suddenly. Come, girl, you shall be my pensioner. You shall have a glorious revenue. For every guinea that you get for keeping a secret, I'll give you two for revealing it. You shall find a husband once in your life, outdo all your gallants in generosity. Take their money, child. Take all their bribes. Give them hopes. Give them assignations. Serve your lady faithfully, but tell all to me. By which means she will be kept chaste. You will grow rich, and I shall preserve my honour. But what security shall I have of performance of articles? Ready payment, child. Then give me earnest. Five guineas. Gives her money. Are they right? No graze in pieces amongst them. All right as my leg. Now, sir, 
I'll give you an earnest of my service. Who do you think has come to town? Who? Your old friend, Sir Harry Wilder. Impossible. Yes, Faith, and as gay as ever. And has he forgot his wife so soon? Why, she has been dead now above a year. He appeared in the ring last night with such splendour and equipage that he eclipsed the bow, dazzled the ladies, and made your wife dream all night of six Flanders mares, seven French liveries, a wig like a cloak, and a hat like a shittlecock. What are a woman's promises and oaths? Wind, wind, sir. When I married her, how heartily did she condemn her light preceding conduct, and for the future vowed herself a perfect pattern of conjugal fidelity. She might as safely swear, sir, that this day, sir night, at four o'clock, the wind will blow fair for Flanders. Tis presuming for any of us all to promise for our inclinations a whole week. Besides, sir, my lady has got the knack of coquetting it, and once a woman has got that in her head, she will have a touch on to everywhere else. An oracle, child. But now I must make the best of a bad bargain, and since I have got you on my side... I have some hopes that by constant disappointment and crosses in her designs, I may at last tire her into good behaviour. Well, sir, the condition of the articles being duly performed, I stand the obligation, and will tell you, father, that by and by, Sir Harry Wilder is to come to our house to cards, and that there is a design laid to cheat him of his money. What company will there be besides? Why, the old set at the basset table. My lady love cards in the usual company. They have made up a bank of 1,500 louis d'or among them. The whole design lies upon Sir Harry's purse. And the French Marquis, you know, constantly taille. Aye, the French Marquis. That's one of your benefactors, Parley. The persecution of Basset in Paris furnished us with that refugee. But the character of such a fellow ought not to reflect on those who have been real sufferers for their religion. But take no notice. Be sure only to inform me of all that passes. There's more earnest for you. Be rich and faithful. Exit. I am now not only woman to the Lady Lurewell, but steward to husband, in my double capacity of knowing her secrets, and commanding his purse. A very pretty office in a family. For every guinea that I get for keeping a secret, he'll give me two for revealing it. My comings in, at any rate, will be worth a master in Chancery's place. And many a poor Templar will be glad to marry me with half my fortune. Going. Enter Dicky, meeting her. Here's a man much fitter for your purposes. Bless me, Mr. Dicky. The very same in longitude and latitude. Not a bit diminished, not a hair's breadth increased. Dear Mrs. Parley, give me a bus for I'm almost starved. Why so hungry, Mr. Dickey? Why, I haven't tasted a bit this year and a half, woman. I have been wandering about all over the world, following my master, and come home to dear London but two days ago. Now the devil take me if I had not rather kiss an English pair of patterns than the finest lady in France. Then you were overjoyed to see London again? Oh, I was just dead of a consumption, till the sweet smoke of Cheapside and the dear perfume of Fleet Ditch 
made me a man again. But how came you to live with Sir Harry Walder? Why, seeing me a handsome, personable fellow, and well qualified for a livery, he took a fancy to my figure, that was all. And what's become of your old master? Oh, hang me, he was a blockhead. And I turned him off. I turned him away. And were not you very sorry for the loss of your mistress, Sir Harry's lady? They say she was a very good woman. Oh, the sweetest woman that ever the sun shined upon. I could almost weep when I think of her. Wiping his eyes. How did she die, pray? I could never hear how it was. Give me a bus then, and I'll tell ye. You shall have your wages when your work's done. Well then, courage. Now for a doleful tale. You know that my master took a freak to go see that foolish jubilee that made such a noise among us here. And no sooner said than done. Away he went. He took his fine French servants to wait on him, and left me, the poor English puppy, to wait upon his lady at Omer. Well, so far so good. But scarce was my master's back turned, when my lady turned to sighing and pouting and whining and crying, and in short, fell sick upon. Well, well, I knew all this already, and that she plucked up her spirits at last, and went to follow him. Very well. Follow him we did, far and far, and farther than I can tell, till we came to a place called Montpellier in France. A goodly place, truly. But Sir Harry had gone to Rome. There was our labour lost. But, to be short, my poor lady, with the tiresomeness of travelling, fell sick and died. Cries. Poor woman. Aye, but that was not all. Here comes the worst of the story. Those cursed barbarous devils of the French would not let us bury her. Not bury her? No, she was a heretic woman, and they would not let her corpse be put in their holy ground. Oh, damn their holy ground for me. Aside. Now had I not better be an honest pagan, as I am, than such a Christian as one of these. Aloud. But how did you dispose the body? Why, there was one charitable gentlewoman that used to visit my lady in her sickness. She contrived the matter so that she had her buried in her own private chapel. This lady and myself carried her out upon our own shoulders through a back door at the hour of midnight and laid her in a grave that I dug for her with my own hands. And if we had been catched by the priests... We had gone to the gallows without the benefit of clergy. Oh, the devil take him. But what did they mean by a heretic woman? I don't know. Some sort of cannibal, I believe. 
I know there are some cannibal women here in England that come to the playhouses in masks, but let them have a care how they go to France, for they are all heretics, I believe. But I'm sure my good lady was none of these. But how did Sir Harry bear the news? Well, you must know that my lady, after she was buried, sent me... How? After she was buried? For why, Lord Mistress, you know what I mean. I went to Sir Harry all the way to Rome. And where do you think I found him? Where? Why, in the middle of a monastery among a hundred and fifty nuns playing at hot cockles. He was surprised to see Honest Dicky, you may be sure. But when I told him the sad story, he roared out a whole volley of English oaths upon the spot and swore that he would set fire on the Pope's palace for the injury done to his wife. Then he flew away to his chamber, locked himself up for three days. We thought to have found him dead, but instead of that, he called for his best linen, fine wig, gilt coach, and laughing very heartily, swore again that he would be revenged, and bid them drive to the nunnery. And he was revenged, to some purpose. How, how, dear Mr Dickey? Why, in a matter of five days, he got six nuns with child, and left them to provide for their heretic bastards. Ah, plague on them. They ate a dead heretic, but they love a piping hot warm heretic with all their hearts. So away we came. And thus did he jog on, revenging himself at this rate through all the Catholic countries that we passed till we came home. And now, Mrs. Parley... I fancy he has some designs of revenge, too, upon your lady. Who could have thought that a man of his light, airy temper would have been so revengeful? Why, faith, I'm a little malicious, too. Where's the bus you promised me, you jade? Follow me, you rogue. Runs off. Allons. Follows. End of Act 1